it's hard to put things back together again. How do you put a broken glass back together? I tried this week and I gave up and I threw it away. How do you put a broken leg back together? And when would it really be better? Or more costly, how do you put a fractured marriage back together? And then what about what about a country? How do you put a country back together again after an election or after a war? The day after General Lee surrendered to Grant in Appomattox, Virginia, President Lincoln gave what would become his final address three days before his assassination. One writer notes how Lincoln, standing at the window of the second floor balcony in the north portico of the White House, waited several minutes for the intense applause to subside. His friend, a journalist, Noah Brooks, then held up a single candle to illuminate Lincoln's prepared remarks. Lincoln's opening lines were joyful. He said, We meet this evening not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart. The evacuation of Petersburg and Richmond and the surrender of the principal insurgent army give hope of a righteous and speedy peace whose joyous expression cannot be restrained and up when an applause. In the midst of this, however, he from whom all blessings flow must not be forgotten. A call for national thanksgiving is being prepared and will be duly promulgated. Yet after this joyful opening and a due acknowledgement of God's providence, Lincoln's speech quickly turned somber. Lincoln reminded the exuberant crowd that now the reconstruction ahead of us is fraught with difficulty, he said. What's more, he noted, quote, that we, the loyal people, will differ among ourselves as to the mode, manner and means of reconstruction. It can be difficult to put a country back together again. Long before Lincoln faced that great difficulty of reunifying a nation after civil war, a great king faced the same difficulty. Would you please locate 2 Samuel 19, 2 Samuel 19, and the first half of the Christian scripture. In this chapter 19, we're going to watch one of the greatest kings in history work to put the nation back together. And like Lincoln and many who would come after him, uh, we're about to see how the task of reconciliation is fraught with great difficulty. But as we've seen in our series in 2 Samuel, we're not only looking at King David, we're to look through King David. Why? Well, remember, David is God's chosen king. His Messiah king is the word used for him. But according to God's great and gracious promises in 2 Samuel 7, we're not to look at David, but we're to look through David to see great David's greater son to come. That is to say that in the experiences of David in the Psalms and in 2 Samuel, in the experiences of David, we're to see the experiences, a prophetic preview, a look ahead of Jesus, the final son of David, the Messiah King. So we have an interpretive warrant and demand from the Old Testament from God to look through David to see Jesus. So this morning, as we look at the difficulty of David and that he has in unifying this divided kingdom, I want you to keep one eye on David, what it meant to them there. But you know, when basketball players make a three, they run down the court and do this. I want you to keep a wider eye on Jesus, the son of David. One eye on David but a wider eye on Christ as we run through the text. 
Let's begin by noting David's initial challenge to unite the divided nation. We're going to watch God's king make all things new and restore what's old. Second Samuel 19 verses 8 to 15. Read with me. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, Israel means Absalom's army had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. That's a good point. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And David, the king, swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Now, God's judgment had fallen on the treasonous Absalom. And Joab's direct, albeit harsh tone, snapped the king out of his self-absorbed grief. Remember, friends, that not all grief is godly, and what we grieve can reveal what we worship. Well, Joab reminded David that he had a kingdom to rule. He had God-given responsibilities to move forward with. And like every one of us here today... David had somebody greater than himself, something bigger than his own feelings that he had to serve. He was God's king. And you, friend, are a child of the king. Joab and David weren't the only ones thinking about how we get the king ruling again. In verses 8 to 10, the defeated Israelites, that part who had gone with Absalom, recognized their need to bring the true king back again. Why aren't we talking of bringing God's king back? That phrase, bring back the king, appears four times in this section, 10, 11, 12, and 15. The whole section then, the whole motive then, is about the desire to bring back God's king. Now think of that. After all that's happened, they have a desire still to bring back the king. Now what does that desire tell us? It's this. That anything we desire apart from God and his king or more than God and his king will fail us. This is what I mean. Just reviewing. And now it's happening here to the nation. Absalom said, if I can only have the king, if I can only have the job, if I can only stay handsome and in shape, I'll have meaning and purpose. But the one thing he desired to give him life ended up taking his life. And David, David said, if only I can have my son more than anything else. But the thing David desired to give him life turned on his life. Listen, you know what the sin beneath every sin is? What's the sin beneath every sin? It's a desire to build your life and meaning on something outside of God or more than God. And we all do it. That's what sin is. Sin is a desire to build your meaning in life on something outside of God or more than God. 
And you know that. Anytime you desire to do that, that's sin. And you know what will happen anytime you build your life on something more than God? That thing will do one of two things to you. It will kill you. That's what Absalom's desire for a career did to him. Or it will turn on you. That's what David's desire for his son did to him. Our desires can kill us. They can turn on us or die us, die on us, but they can never save us. And now what David and Absalom learned about building a brand, building their identity outside of God, now the nation of Israel was coming to terms with. Well, how so? Well, the nation had thought now for the second time, if we only had a certain king, if we only had Saul. And now if we only had Absalom, we'll finally be something. If we only had a king, we'd be something. They wanted another king besides God's king. They desired something more than God. And that's the heart of all our sin. One thing we've learned in our time in 1 and 2 Samuel is this, that sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is what? Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is to get exactly what you want. The nation the nation got the king they wanted twice, but now they're left wanting a different king, a true king. Absalom is dead, they said. We need to bring back the true king. Verse 10, indeed. Now, here's the point of these chapters that have been working on us, David and Absalom and now the nation, that anything you desire apart from Christ or more than Christ, it will fail you. And when you finally get the thing that you want in life the most, even that thing will leave you high and dry wanting something better. Life can be marked with cosmic disappointments, not only in our sorrows, but even in our successes. Israel got the king they wanted, Absalom, only to have their hearts cry out still, oh, but we need to bring back the king. Do you see this? This entire section of chapters we've been working through, it's working on all of our idols. It's, it's putting us on the massage table and working out all the idols in our muscles. Boy, that was a strange mixed metaphor, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, and looking at what David and Absalom worshipped, what the nation desired, what they built their identity on, we're seeing our own hearts if we only have the courage to look long enough. Here's what I mean. We overwork because we overlove something more than God. What is it? We overorganize and desire control because we love something more than God. What is it? We overgrieve because we overlove. Remember, that's what Matthew Henry said about David. What is it? In other words, you know where our desires and our disappointments reveal? Do you know where they actually lead? They lead us to a deep longing for God's true king. That's not, that's true. Not getting what you want will leave you longing for God. But what's even scarier is getting what you want will leave you longing for God. Bring back the king, they said. Why? Because the loneliest moment in life is when you get what you thought would deliver the ultimate value to you and it leaves you empty. That's a scary, lonely moment. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He has in a chapter in Hope. Go read it this afternoon. Lewis writes, Most people... If they had really learned to look into their hearts. Now, that's what the passage is doing. This passage is telling you, look into your hearts. Lewis says most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and what acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you, but they never deliver on their promise. For instance, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love. 
when you first think of visiting a foreign country or you first take up some subject that excites you are longings which no marriage and no travel and no learning can ready, really satisfy. And I'm I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or bad vacations or careers. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in the first moment of our longing, which fades away into reality. I think every one of us knows what I mean. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery may have been excellent. The job may be interesting, but something has evaded us still. Do you see? Lewis says that even the best marriages and the best jobs and the best vacations can't deliver on the satisfaction they promise. Israel got the king they wanted. They got Absalom. But now their hearts are still crying out for God's true king. And so, Augustine said in his confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. But not only is a nation restless to bring back God's king, God's king is restless to come back as God's king. So in verses 11 to 15, David summons all the elders of Judah. And in verses 11 and 12, he says, listen, of all the tribes, you, Judah, should be calling me. You should be calling everybody else as Judah to bring back the king. Now, why? Well, one reason it's stated explicitly is David says in verse 12, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I come in a sense from your tribe, your family. Why should you be, verse 12, the last to call bring me back? We're family. But there's another reason I think that David is appealing to Judah. First, where did Absalom's rebellion begin against David? In Judah. Absalom hatched his plan to rebel against the king in Hebron of Judah, and the tribe of Judah was the first to happily go along with it. 2 Samuel 15, verse 10. What's that mean? It means the king comes first to Judah because Judah is where the rebellion began first. The king then is forcing the tribe with the most responsibility for starting the war to take the most responsibility to bring back the king. And there's a principle. The party with the greater sin should make the greater restitution. That's a good principle in a family. It's a good principle in marriage. It's a good principle in a church. David confronts the tribe with the greatest responsibility for rejecting the king to take the greatest action to bring back the king. And set within the framework of the redemptive story to come, the tribe of Judah, the very tribe that rejects God's Messiah king in 2 Samuel 15, would be the very tribe through whom God's final Messiah king would come. How gracious the Lord is. We were vile, ungrateful enemies. A whole tribe of people who rejected your king. And yet through that tribe that rejected the king, the king will come. What grace. What mercy. And God not only saves sinners like the tribe of Judah, but he uses sinners like Judah and the tribe of Judah. And that means that God can use any of us. That means God could use, if God could use the tribe of Judah, he can use our church. He loves using imperfect, sinful, repenting people. Well, David now, verse 15, has all Israel ready to bring back the king. Here is the king who restores and renews his people. And the text is telling you, behold, the return of the king. 
But before I read the next section, David makes a, another move to reunite the nation. It's controversial. It's risky. It might even be a bit punitive, but it's bold and politically shrewd. What move does the king make? Look at verse 13. He appoints Amasa as the new five-star general over a reunited Israel. Now, why is that bold and controversial? Well, for one reason, Amasa was the general on the other side who just lost the war. You typically don't give the losing quarterback the MVP. The loser, you gave a promotion. And not only that, but Amasa is the very commander who led the rebellion for Absalom. And you're promoting him? Second, David just picked Amasa over Joab, who had won the victory and saved David's life and helped now reunite the kingdom. Is David getting back a little at Joab for disregarding his order not to harm his son? Or, as noble as Joab has been to protect the kingship and unify the kingdom, and there's no doubt he's done that at every point and well, Joab also has a habit of what some may see as excessive military force. He's even harmed civilians in the process. And perhaps now David wants a more restrained general as the nation gathers and regathers. President Truman made a roughly similar decision as David, equally as unpopular among American citizens at the time. American people flooded the White House with letters expressing their disagreement with his decision. Well, what happened? In 1951, President Truman relieved one of the greatest generals of wartime history. He relieved General Douglas MacArthur of his command. Some say that MacArthur did more for America and world freedom than any other general. And some argue that if MacArthur had been allowed to keep leading, there would be no North Korea as it exists today. Yet MacArthur, like Joab before him, often made comments that contradicted the president's policy. So Truman relieved him of his command. It was an unpopular, bold, controversial move. Or however risky and controversial, however punitive David's choice may or may not have been, the choice is also politically shrewd. So after the Civil War, former general, but then, but then President Grant invited General Lee to the White House to the capital of the reunited United States. And Lee went. But what happened? Well, Lee and that meeting became an icon of the reconciliation between the North and South. It became symbolic of the reintegration of the former Confederate people into the national fabric. Well, David's appointment of Amasa then is an enormous bargaining gesture. It's an icon of reconciliation that the king wants to reintegrate the nations together again. Now, maybe you don't agree with David, but Lincoln himself said people will differ as to the mode and manner and means of reconstruction. But this is the route David takes. He's serious about reunifying the nation. But I don't even think that's the most important thing we should talk about. What we must see in the context above everything else is God's faithful hand in keeping his promises both to a flawed king and to a sinful nation. More than any of these possible political explanations and motivations is this. God is faithful to keep his promise to a sinful king and a sinful nation. 
God is the hero. He's the promise keeper. He's the war general in charge. As one commentator notes, the overriding concern of the narrator is not to explain the motivations of all the players in the story, but to depict God's providential working to fulfill his promises in 2 Samuel 7. You have to see God's providential hand guiding the historical process, hidden though it is, behind all the maneuverings and the machinations and the political scheming and counter-scheming. Nevertheless, it all moves inexorably forward in accordance with God's purposes for David's life, the dynasty, and the salvation of the world to come. God wasn't going to let his king go down because God was faithful, because God is gracious. God's steadfast love will continue to remain steadfast. Thank you very much, David and Israel. And what David's hope was is our only hope to God's steadfast love. For a moment, I want us to peek down to the end of the chapter. Remember, one of the tools in our Wednesday night study is the top and tail of a passage. The beginning and end can help you see the goal of the author. So now look down. Let's read verses 41 to 43 to see how the passage ends. 1941 to 43. The chapter begins, as we saw, with Israel and Judah working to come together after the war. Now let's see what happens as the chapter ends. Verses 41 to 43. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Has he given us any gift to do this? And the men of Israel answered back to the men of Judah. Yes, but we have ten shares. We have ten tribes in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So the chapter ends as it begins with the nation still working out how to reunite. And as you can see, the war is over, but a lot of deep suspicion remains. Sometimes winning the peace can be a greater challenge than winning the war, wrote one historian. That's the challenge before them. In a sense, Israel lived then as we do now. Israel lived in the already, not yet. God's king was already back ruling, but things were not yet as they ought to be in Israel. And so we see here at the end of this chapter that the reunited nation still has a lot to work through. Much forgiveness and love to undertake. Much faith in God's king to keep striving for. Similarly, we live between in the already time of Christ's coming, his death and resurrection, and the not yet of his final kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's true, Jesus said. Jesus is certainly back from the dead. He's ruling at the right hand of the Father until he puts all enemies under his feet. The king has already come. But things are not yet as they should be. We too live between the already and the not yet. 
So until the the king's final return, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, until all kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, until then, let us love God supremely and let us love one another deeply. As Judah and Israel, as they came together in the already not yet, let us be careful, EBC, as Judah and Israel had to be, of fighting against one another rather than with one another. And all God's people said, Amen. Let it be said of the Lord's people everywhere and of our congregation especially that we, Philippians 1, 27 and 28, we strive to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by any opponents of the gospel, Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Well, Well, here is God's king making all things new. Here is God's king come to make his people a holy people again. One people. But now, sandwiched in between this top and tail are three stories, three people whom King David restores and rewards. God's king is not just interested in uniting the nation, top and tail. He's interested in reuniting individuals in the kingdom, in the nation. So now we're going to look at three people who show us the mercy and magnificence of magnificence of God's king. The first up in verse 16 is a vile snake named Shimei, whose name sounds like a hissing snake. Here we go. Here's the first subject to meet the king, verse 16 to 20. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I myself have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, The king. This is the word of the Lord. David is met by Shimei, the Benjamite. Remember how characters are described always helps you know what's going on. Benjamin is a tribe of Saul who always sought to kill David. And in short, on his way into Jerusalem, David was met by an enemy. And the last time we saw Shimei in 2 Samuel 16, he was assaulting the king with his words and with stones as David fled for his life. And Shimei hurled the worst kinds of accusations at David. False accusations. He made these accusations publicly and he punctuated each insult with the hurling of a stone. He hurled his maledictions and boulders down at the king and he cursed him, falsely blamed him for all the bloodshed in King Saul's family and he said, God's paying you back. God's paying you back. Well, what a sight we have now. Shimei 
once hurried to harass the king, and now he hurries to confess the king, and he makes his confession in verse 19. First, he confesses the wrong he did. He then admits his guilt. And then he shows why his cursing and his stone throwing were so serious. He says, I did this against my Lord, the king. The greater and more important the person sinned against is, the greater the crime. Now, you shouldn't do either. You better not do either. But but hitting your friend and hitting your mom are two different things. It's the same action, but it's not the same thing. The offense is worse based on who the person was that you offended. How great then is Shimei's wrongdoing, for he had committed crimes against the king, God's Messiah. And friends, we are in worse shape than Shimei. For when we sin, any sin that we do is against God. All of our sins, all of our identity building are against the one who made us. Therefore, how great are our crimes. Thus, Shimei's false accusations and his crimes, they were made in broad daylight. And now his confession will be as broad as his sin in broad daylight. He falls down before the king and he says emphatically in the language of the of the Old Testament, I myself have sinned. He's in the dirt at the mercy of the king. I myself have sinned. Now, have you come to that point in your life? Have you ever come to that point in your life? Are you at that point in your life now? That realizing the most fundamental problem in your life is you. That your greatest problem is not who the king was or who the president was or is. It's not finally how you were raised. It's not the school you went to or the spouse that you married. But the greatest singular problem you have in your heart is your sin. I myself have sinned. How? By seeking to build his life on something other than God's king. So now have you taken responsibility and ownership for building your life in ways other than God's king? Because until we're down in the dirt with Shimei, until we can say about any sin and the general trajectory of my life, until you're down in the dirt and you say, I myself have sinned, you will never be right with anybody. You'll never be right with God who made you. So what should happen to Shimei at this point? Well, verse 112 tells us exactly what should happen to Shimei for his crimes. Look at verse 21. Here comes Abishai, the son of Zariah, and he answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed? He cursed the Lord's Messiah? Remember Abishai. Anytime Abishai opened his mouth, he wants to fight. He's an MMA fighter. He's got his sword ready. He's got his brass knuckles on. He was David's general and a brother of Joab. And he says the dude deserves death. Now he's right. Old Testament law says to curse the king and physically assault the king as a crime worthy of death. Justice demands death. He even underlines the seriousness of the offense. He says, David, he cursed the Lord's anointed. He cursed God's Messiah. No wonder Shimei is in the dirt begging for mercy. So now we arrive at a high point of tension in this story. What will the king do to somebody who deserves death? Well, let's read verses 22 to 23. 
But David said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do not I know that I myself this day am king now over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. This is the word of the Lord. Now more remarkable than Shimei's confession is the king's mercy. Justice demanded death. He's down on his knees with his neck exposed to the warrior king, to God's king. And what should happen? What should happen is death. That would be righteous. And yet now to a man who threatened his life, to a man who committed crimes against the nation, to a man rightly getting ready to be strapped to the electric chair in Israel, the king drops everyone's jaw with the next words. You shall not. What a thundering moment of magnificent mercy. This king is going to establish his throne in mercy. You shall not die. The only person, only the person sinned against can truly grant forgiveness. Here's an illustration. Imagine if somebody crashes into your car and breaks your leg and you have to have reconstructive surgery. It happened to my friend in the hospital. Imagine then if I visit you in the hospital and I say, I don't want you to worry about what happened to you anymore. And if you're struggling with insurance and bitterness, don't because I found the person and I forgave the person who hit you for you. And you say, you need a sabbatical. You need to get out of here. Why? Because only the person sinned against can grant the forgiveness. So look at the pickle that Shimei's in. The only person that can forgive him is God's Messiah King. That's the only person who can forgive him. You committed crimes against God's Messiah and the state. And now the king, the most offended party, the party with all the authority in the kingdom, just looked at you and said, you will not die. And then says, I give you my oath. This king is a merciful king. After the costly battle of Agincourt and Shakespeare's Henry V, you remember Henry issues a proclamation as the den of war on the battlefield ends and Henry proclaims, in our marches through the country, there shall be nothing compelled from the villages, nothing taken but paid for, none of the French abraded or abused in disdainful language, For when lenity and cruelty play for a kingdom, the gentler gamester is the soonest winner. And so King David says, this day. That word appears four times here. This day, this day, this day. The day of my return as the king will be marked with joy. Joyful days, said Matthew Henry, should be forgiving days. That's right. For when lenity and cruelty play for a kingdom, the gentler gamester is the soonest winner. I want you to see one more thing before we hit the next guy. Some don't even know if Shimei's repentance is genuine and, and real. Is he sucking up? Now, if so, it makes the king's actions all the more amazing. But here's the point I want to say to you. The focus of the story is not on Shimei's great crimes, but on the king's great mercy. You shall not die, the king said. 
Now, don't you see? Don't you see? There's a king greater than David here. Don't look at David, but look through him to Jesus, the son of David. Where from his throne on the cross, Jesus gave a look to guilty sinners like you and me and said, I freely all forgive. You shall not die. I swear it with my life, the king said. This day I will seal your pardon with my blood. And God's people say, hallelujah, what a savior. The king is back. You will not die. Behold, friends, behold, this is the day of salvation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through his king might be saved. And all that come to me, I will never reject. John six thirty seven. May the love of the king compel you to come to him again and again and again, or for the first time to throw yourself down and say and say and say, Lord, be merciful to me to the sinner. And you hear you shall not die. Our sins, they are many, but say it, His mercy is more. The love you're looking for, you only find in this King. But from the King who shows great mercy, we're now going to see someone who shows us this, that this merciful King is such a great treasure. Now we move from Shimei to another man named Mephibosheth. Let's look again at the magnificence of God's King. Verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the King. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God and do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. This is the Lord's word. Now remember, Mephibosheth was of the rival house of Saul. He was also lame in his feet, which means Mephibosheth is helpless and he was ripe for defeat. He was, in his own words, verse 28, doomed for death. But out of fealty to his now deceased friend Jonathan, David had showed mercy and heaped honor on Mephibosheth, the king had turned a helpless enemy and treated him like a son. He brought him to his table. But Mephibosheth is doing worse than we saw him last. First, his appearance is a train wreck. Verse 24, he's neither trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes. It's the old Hebrew way of saying he's a lame, hot, stinking, too sorry to look at mess. And more than that, a few chapters earlier, a servant named Ziba accused Mephibosheth of selling the king out and going with Absalom. How it must have pained David at that first report. I turned an enemy into a friend and now my friend has become my enemy. It's the kind of news that makes you jaded and makes you cynical about ever wanting to help anybody again to get out of pastoral ministry, to close your business, so to speak. So now as the king makes his way back in Jerusalem, you better believe he makes a beeline to see Mephibosheth and he comes face to face and he asks him, the king demands an answer, verse 25, why didn't you come with me? 
Ziba Mephibosheth states his case. In essence, he says, it's all a lie. I was slandered, king. You know that I'm lame. I tried to saddle a donkey and come, but Ziba sold me out. He left without me and he left with my donkey. And therefore, verse 27, do whatever seems good to you. I'm at your mercy. Now Mephibosheth, like Shimei, is at the king's mercy. There he is. He has no defense. He has no defense against a false accusation. All he can do is say this. I, I have no right to the king's mercy. You've already taken me from one doomed to death to eating at your table. Therefore, do whatever seems good to you. Now, we don't know who's telling the truth, Ziba or Mephibosheth. We might get 50-50 poll here. I don't know. Neither does David, per se. But I do think, I do think that it looks like Ziba wasn't as truthful as he should have been. I think David might as well, because previously David had given all the property to Ziba, but now he reassigns the property and gives half to Mephibosheth and half to Ziba. Regardless, the king is not after Mephibosheth's property rights. He wants to know which citizens are for him or against him. He's after Mephibosheth's heart and his loyalty. It looks like, to me, the king devised a test to reveal his true love and loyalty. It's a test that David Solomon's son uses later when Solomon isn't sure the truth about the baby. Do you remember that story? Two ladies come before the king saying that the baby is theirs. Now, as the readers of the story, we know one of the ladies is lying. But since both claim to be the mother and Solomon doesn't know who the mother is, he makes this audacious judgment. Cut the baby in half and give half to that lady and half to that lady. But as soon as he gives the order, the real mother of the baby shows herself to Solomon when she says, don't do it, don't do it. Just keep the baby alive. Give it to the other lady. She showed who the true mother was. I think that Solomon may have learned that test from his dad here. Here's what I mean. David is saying, this is my filling in the blanks. I don't know who's telling the truth, so I'll divide the property in half. Dramatic pause. What will Mephibosheth do? Will he say, ain't fair. Dramatic pause in the text. What will Mephibosheth do? Here's what I mean. He's drawing out his loyalty, I think, with this test. Here's what I mean. There's a story attributed. I haven't been able to find it. Maybe you'll find it. It's attributed to, to, to Charles Spurgeon. He told a story of uh, the tale of the king, the carrot, and the horse. Once upon a time, Spurgeon said, there was a humble gardener who brought the greatest carrot he'd ever grown, and he gave it as a gift to the king. And the carrot was a token of his deep love for the king. And the gardener's love and loyalty moved the king's heart so much that he rewarded the gardener's gift of a carrot with a plot of land right next to the king's own palace. It's all yours, the king said. Garden it all you want. Now, a nobleman in the courtyard overheard it and thought, an acre of land for a carrot. I wonder what the king would give for something better than a carrot. So the next day, the nobleman walks in with a magnificent, freshly washed Arabian horse and presents it to the king as a token of his respect. And the wise king, discerning the intentions of the nobleman's heart, accepts the gift with a simple thank you and dismisses him with no further ado. At once, the nobleman's face fell and the king explained. The gardener gave me the carrots, but you gave yourself the horse. He gave out of love for me. You gave out of love for yourself. Now, do you see what's happened? The nobleman loved the king for what the king could do. The gardener loved the king for who he was. That's the test I think David's giving Mephibosheth and to any reader now of the story. Do you love me as the king or are you using me as the king? Now, what's Mephibosheth's reply? 
Verse 30. Oh, let him take it all since my Lord the King has come safely home. Now I think Mephibosheth is saying this. Take the world. I have the King. The pleasures of your presence is better than the presence of your palace. Now listen, don't look at Mephibosheth and don't look at David. I want you to look through them. You don't come to Jesus because he's useful. You come to Jesus because he's beautiful. Jesus is his own reward. Oh, let him take it all. I have the king. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And how great must this king be that the pleasures of his presence are better than the presence of his palace. And I wonder, do you know that king? Do you know his love? At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. At his right hand are pleasures. Shimei greatly deserved death, but this king says, you shall not die. The king tested Mephibosheth's motives and Mephibosheth said, you are my treasure. Let him have everything else. We have one more scene. And here's what we're going to see. That the king delights in us more than we delight in him. Verse 38. Now Barzillai the Gilead had come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? Kind of makes fun of himself here. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what's pleasant and what's not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? I can't enjoy a concert. Can I hear the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the king? Your servant will only go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. That's his son. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I myself will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. And the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah and also the half-tribe of Israel brought the king on his way. This is the word of the Lord. I know we're at the end. I can't plumb the depths, but it's a deeply tender scene, isn't it? An 80-year-old man whose senses are almost gone. All of his senses are gone except one. His heart still beats for God's king. Why should I gain from your reward, he says. And what he has left, he offers to the king. All his wealth, but more precious still. Did you notice Barzillai offers the king his son? It's deeply moving that the love of his and the love of his son, it's an easy exchange to make for such a king. How marvelous God's king must be. You know how deeply encouraging 
We, we heard Nancy say it, but I had it written in my notes. How deeply encouraging that you among us at EBC, the aged, respectfully the gray-headed, the bald-headed, are so dearly loved. You are among us. I turned this morning. I like to try to look at some of you. I looked as we were singing Jerusalem, my happy home. Ron has a tear down his eyes. And Grandma Georgia is smiling as we talk of a happy home of Jerusalem. We have Barzileis in our midst. You are loved. You are dearly loved, you gray-headed ones in our midst. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you, Isaiah 46, 4. But earlier in the king's shame, the old man had provided for the king. But how marvelous in this twist of mercy, the king says, I now am going to provide for you. What would it mean to hear God's king say to you, I will provide for you? A king. Did not another king later say, let not your hearts be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. But that's not all. Because the king says, come over with me to Jerusalem. It's one thing to have the pleasure of the king's wealth. It's another thing to have the pleasure of the king's company. I want you to be with me in Jerusalem. Indeed, now don't you hear the son of David say, not only do I go to prepare a place for you, but I prepare a place for you that you might be with me. And then as if it's not enough, the king says, anything you desire of me, I will do for you. Anything you want, I will do for you. Do you see what's happening? God's king delights in us more than we delight in him. He treasures us more than we treasure him. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. The love of this king is so amazing and so divine. It demands my life and my soul and my all because he treasures us more than we treasure him. He wants our company more than we want his. The only person, writes Tim Keller, the only person who dares wake up the king at midnight for a glass of water is the king's child. And we have that kind of access. But better still, we have that kind of king. And so George Herbert could write, love bade me welcome me be with you forever. Me, do you know what I am? Do you know what's in here? Me? The ungrateful, the man losing his eyes and senses, the Shimei, the Mephibosheth, me. I want you, the king bids, come, reside. My death secured your place. By faith, you're justified. Redemption is the theme of Zion's song the king, his life, he gave at such great cost. He brought me home and all my sins forgave. Behold, Jesus Christ, the king who makes all things new. Do you know how much he loves you?